This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Comedian Sasha Baron Cohen has beaten yet another lawsuit by someone he hoodwinked in a prank interview. In a segment on the Showtime series, Who is America?, Cohen appeared as counterterrorism instructor Colonel Aaron Morad, discussing bogus military technology with former Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore, including a supposed pedophile detector that beeped when placed near Moore. Uh, it is very, very uh, simple to use. You just switch it on, and because uh, neither of us are sex offenders, then it makes absolutely nothing. You just put it on, you put it nearby. Wait, this, this is obviously a problem. Hold on. Hold on. It must be faulty. Moore sued for defamation to the tune of $95 million. Joining me is Marianne Pazanowski, senior legal reporter for Bloomberg Law. So, for those who are not Borat fans, tell us about the interview. It was recorded for a show that was broadcast on Showtime called Who is America? This particular episode aired in the summer of 2018 after Justice Moore had run for unsuccessfully for the U.S. Senate from Alabama. And during his campaign, several women had come forward and accused him of having had inappropriate sexual relationships with them when they were much younger. And at least one of them said she was under 18 at the time that he had a sexual relationship with her. He denied all of those accusations, of course. I don't know that they were ever proven, but they were out there. And this particular episode of Who is America begins with news clips, clips from various and sundry news organizations reporting on these accusations about Justice Moore. Now, he says he was lured to Washington, D.C. by Sasha Baron Cohen and his production company to accept an award from the Israeli government, for being such a good friend to Israel. When he got there, they said, oh, and by the way, we have a general who's a terrorism expert, and we want he wants to interview you about getting this award. Moore is brought into the interview. It's Sasha Baron Cohen dressed up in one of his alter egos, and they begin talking about how Alabama and Israel share a commitment to fairness and honesty for all people. and. At one point, Cohen says, we have developed technology to discover hiding places, tunnels in which terrorists hide. And also, by the way, this particular technology also can detect enzyme secretions that are only found in pedophiles, that pedophiles secrete enzymes that other people don't, and that this technology can detect them. When Cohen brings out the wand. He puts it by himself. And of course, nothing happens. He puts it over by Moore and it starts beeping. Cohen brings back himself, says, oh, you know, it's still not beeping. He brings in another person, puts the wand near the other person. It doesn't beep, goes back to Moore. It starts beeping immediately. And Moore immediately says, I've been married for 33 years. I've never had any accusations like this thrown at me. They're absolutely untrue. And eventually gets up and leaves. And as he's leaving, Cohen is yelling, I'm not calling you a pedophile. There must be something wrong with this device. I don't know why it would do that. The judge dismissed the lawsuit on summary judgment. That's before trial. 
and it revolved around a release Moore had signed. Tell us about the judge's reasoning. There is a doctrine in U.S. law that says if you can avoid a constitutional question, do it. So the court starts with this. It's called the Doctrine of Constitutional Avoidance. The court starts with this and says, well, we don't have to consider Sasha Baron Cohen's First Amendment defense, his free speech defense, because Judge Moore signed a standard consent agreement before he appeared on the interview. And in this agreement, Judge Moore specifically, but without limitation, waives and agrees not to bring at any time in the future any claims against the producer. So can't bring any claims against producers, assignees, licensees, related to intentional infliction of emotional distress, defamation, or fraud. The exact three causes of action that Roy Moore alleged in his complaint. Court goes on to say, under New York law, he waived those claims. That language in the contract is unambiguous. It's clear. He signed the contract with no expectation about being able to bring a lawsuit about any conduct that would fit within those three causes of action. It's not a general release. It's a specific release. Essentially, Cohen provided his own precedent because the judge in this case cited an opinion by Judge Loretta Preska in another case over Cohen's 2006 Borat film. So the language in this release has been tested in court. Apparently so. Um, what Judge Cronin here says is that Judge Preska reached the same conclusion when she considered substantially identical language in a release and dismissed claims brought by individuals featured in Cohen's 2006 film. Moore also claimed the waiver was ineffective because it was obtained fraudulently. How did the judge handle that? He also waived that in the contract that he signed, according to the court. The exact language provides participants' knowledge is but in entering this agreement, he's not relying on any promises or statements made by anyone about the nature of the program or the identity, behavior, or qualifications of any other participants, cast members. I think cast members should have been a red flag there, or other persons involved in the program. He's signing this agreement with no expectations or understandings concerning the conduct, offensive or otherwise, of anyone involved in the program. The court said that language precludes a fraudulent inducement claim. Moore's wife also sued, and the judge dismissed her lawsuit as well, ruling that her claims were barred by the First Amendment. What did the judge rely on? The precedent on which he relies goes back a fairly long time. The most outstanding, which is the Hustler Magazine versus Falwell. It was a case brought by Jerry Falwell against Hustler Magazine based on a parody that they did of him in the magazine. This was a 1987 decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that said when you have a public figure, and Judge Moore's public figure here, the First Amendment bars claim unless the publication contained a false statement of fact that was made with actual malice. So long as the speech could not reasonably be construed to state actual facts about its subject, then it's protected. And Judge Cronin said here, the targeted speech can't be construed by a reasonable person as having stated actual facts about Judge Moore. And the court pointed to Cohen's ridiculous getup, his antics during the piece. So Cronin eventually concluded this was obviously a joke. And now he may have stated things that were offensive, but the Supreme Court has said no matter how offensive, this is protected speech. It's political satire, and political satire is among the most protected speech we have in this country. Thanks, Marianne. That's Marianne Pazanowski, senior legal reporter for Bloomberg Law. 
Partisan controversy over voting rights flared at a confirmation hearing for a New York-based federal appeals court nominee who was questioned by conservative lawmakers over her record working on election and voting law issues. But Biden nominees for the Second and Tenth Circuit, both women and former public defenders, move forward in the process. Joining me is Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond School of Law. So tell us about the nominees who move forward in the confirmation process. Well, Eunice Lee for the Second Circuit and Veronica Rossman for the Tenth Circuit had their committee votes, and both of them were approved and sent to the floor so they could be uh, confirmed as soon as this week. Um, and so that's what happened last week. Um, this afternoon, Tiffany Cunningham will have her final confirmation vote at 530 uh, to sit as the first black member of the uh, federal circuit in Washington. Were the committee votes down partisan lines? Uh, in committee on Thursday, to some extent, yes, but not completely. Um, it was 11 to 10 for Lee uh, and 12 to 10 for Rossman. Uh, Graham took a pass, and that allowed it not to be a tie vote. So she, both of them went to the floor on the uh, district nominees from Western District of Washington for three emergencies out there, uh, the votes were stronger. Estadio was 15 to 7, King was 13 to 9, Lynn was close, 11 to 10. So that was what happened uh, last Thursday at the executive business meeting. So now let's talk about the confirmation hearing for another nominee to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, Myrna Perez. Tell us about her, first of all. Well, she has been an extremely strong and very effective uh, voting rights advocate at the Brennan Center in New York. And Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, had recommended her very highly to the White House, and President Biden nominated her um, on June 15th. And so she was up last week with some district nominees. And uh, the questions from Republicans were uh, not very effective. And she fielded all of them. Uh, I think it's safe to say some Republican senators were not very satisfied with her responses. Uh, but the questions were uh, ones about, for example, her judicial philosophy. Uh, was she an originalist? Uh, and those kinds of questions. And she gave pretty standard answers, um, which a number of Republican appointees of President Trump had given to very similar kinds of questions. Uh, and so... The Republicans ultimately were reduced to saying she would be a uh, voting rights and civil rights uh, activist on the court, but she said she completely understood the different roles that she would have. She would no longer be an advocate, as she has been, for voting rights, uh, but that she would be an impartial uh, arbiter as a federal judge. 
and they went back and forth. Uh, three or four Republicans questioned her, but she continued to say that, and so they accused her of being um, a judicial activist. So let me ask you this. Does it seem different if a nominee has practiced law, either civil or criminal, as opposed to a nominee who's been an advocate for policy? So do the Republicans have something of a point here? Well, there is a point, um, but many people have gone on the federal bench who uh, are advocates before they became judges. Um, both in Republican and Democratic administrations, and Grassley waxed eloquent about the, that it was no problem that someone had been an advocate for civil rights and reeled off a number of Trump appointees, um, which was somewhat disingenuous, but he, that, was his, that was what he said. So he recognized that people could be strong advocates and still serve on the federal bench. Um, and so... Um, I think she answered uh, as in as straightforward a way as the Trump appointees did and many others before her. Um, but that was the argument that was being made by the Republican senators, I think, in asking her those questions over and over again. Carl, obviously there's no requirement that someone be a lower court judge before becoming an appellate court judge. But is it a better practice just as eight of the nine justices currently on the Supreme Court were circuit court judges before they were elevated to the Supreme Court. Is it better to have someone who's been a judge before than elevate that person to the Federal Court of Appeals as they've been elevating people from the Federal Courts of Appeals to the Supreme Court? Well, sure. And many of the sitting appellate judges around the country were elevated from the district bench. Uh, And that's a practice that goes back a long way, and all Republican and Democratic presidents do that, um, because it's um, easy. The people have had a vote. We know what their records are, uh, and all those kinds of ideas. But there are plenty of fine uh, lawyers who go on the bench, especially the appellate bench, Uh, And I can think of them in Republican and Democratic administrations, like um, on the Seventh Circuit, people like Frank Easterbrook or um, Richard Posner, um, Robert Bork on the D.C. Circuit, uh, Antonin Scalia, and many others. So those were happened to be academics, so I was familiar with them. But... um, but there is no magic in it. it. You know, it's desirable to know your way around uh, federal district court practice um, to be on an appeals court, but it's not dispositive. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which encompasses New York, Connecticut, and Vermont, is a high-profile court of appeals. It's located in Manhattan, and it's the chief venue for cases involving corporations and Wall Street. And neither of the Biden nominees to that circuit court has been a judge. No, uh, Eunice Lee was in the New York public defender system for almost two decades and has been a federal public defender after that. Um, And Paris has mostly been doing voting rights, I think, litigation and advocacy. Many judges on the appellate courts go directly to those courts from all kinds of uh, circumstances. and certainly active practitioners in the lower courts 
uh, are familiar with federal court practice. Um, and don't forget Katanji uh, Brown Jackson for the D.C. Circuit was a district judge since 2013 when she was elevated by President Biden. So, you know, it, there have been some and there'll be more um, who have um, come from the lower federal courts uh, to be elevated to the district courts. But Schumer isn't responsible for the choice of Katanji Brown Jackson. So I'm just wondering why he didn't pick a district court judge to elevate. There are plenty of fine judges on the Eastern District and on the Southern District uh, who could have been elevated. Thinking of Oatkin and Chan on the Eastern District, um, but um, that those recommendations were made forward with what the White House said it would like by way of the people uh, to be nominated, that they have experiential diversity. And uh, Eunice Lee and um, uh, Myrna Perez bring those uh, qualities. Uh, so that is, you know, part of working with the White House on appellate nominees. So now a coalition of more than 50 legal groups, including several state criminal defense organizations, sent a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee, the leaders of the committee, saying that Biden's judicial nominees with public defender backgrounds are being singled out for extra criticism. What's the point of this letter? Well, I think to push back on the Republican senators who have been critical of uh, federal public defenders who are nominees because they say those nominees don't have broad enough experience. Uh, an example was Eunice Lee uh, in terms of civil procedure, but she has a wealth of experience, as do all of the other nominees who've been federal public defenders in the federal court system. And so it's, it's an unfair criticism, and I think they were just saying uh, that these nominees are all highly qualified and uh, would be excellent federal judges. And so it isn't fair to single them out because they've been doing uh, this kind of work, which, of course, the White House is concerned about in terms of experiential diversity, given the wealth and high percentages of uh, former uh, federal uh, prosecutors on the, for example, the Second Circuit, I think seven or so of the president um, judges of that court uh, were uh, federal prosecutors before they ascended to the bench. I want to turn to Justice Stephen Breyer because he told CNN he hasn't decided when he's going to retire from the court, that his health would be the primary consideration with the court being a second factor. He said he enjoys his new seniority and the justices' private discussions over cases, and this has caused a lot of frustration among liberals. For example, Demand Justice's executive director, Brian Fallon, said, in other words, this is about ego. It's remarkably like why Justice Ginsburg stayed on. Well, I think that's the concern that people have. And we've talked before that uh, it's a very difficult, important decision that people make. Uh, when they decide to retire. And so the concern is, is one similar to uh, Justice Ginsburg, and that is if Democrats lose the majority in 2022, then uh, that opportunity to uh, replace Justice Breyer may be lost. That's the concern. He's pretty smart. My guess is he has considered it. 
uh, and thought it through very carefully. And, of course, the Democrats may retain their majority. And there's opportunities until, really, until the Senate turns over in early 2023, if that were to happen. And so uh, there's still time to go ahead and nominate and confirm someone for his seat. Thanks, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.